No one likes to feel stuck, especially by your cloud. But the IBM cloud is the most open and secure public cloud for business. It can manage all your apps and data anywhere. Smart loves problems. IBM, let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash flexible. Welcome to The Sporting Life with Jeremy Schapp. Over the next hour, Jeremy talks with ESPN legend Bob Lee, who announced his retirement this week after 40 years at the network. I'm proudest of being in at the ground floor of something that's become an American cultural institution. I don't think you can write the cultural history of the United States for the last 40 or 50 years without being a, a chapter on sports as an entertainment industry in this entity, which was just one TV network to begin with, and it's now a global monolith. And Ryan McGee shares why the College World Series is such a meaningful event to him. The first College World Series I attended was with my father on Father's Day weekend. And because of ESPN and cable television, we were a college sports household. And we were all like, man, one day, wouldn't it be great to get to Omaha? And my father and I finally did in 2001, and it was everything we had dreamed of. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schapp. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. This week, we will be speaking with my longtime colleague and friend, Bob Lee, on the occasion of his retirement from ESPN after 40 years at the network. But before we get to Bob Lee, we welcome another old friend, another pillar of ESPN, someone who's been at the network for decades, someone whose work is universally acclaimed and appreciated, the great Norman Chad. Norman, thank you for being with us. You know, Jeremiah, I build my week around these appearances, so it's, it's, it's probably fortunate for me that I only appear once or twice a year. On your show. Well, it's it's not for lack of trying on our part. Uh, you're a hard man to reach. The World Series of Poker, I know, has been taking place. That's your Super Bowl. Um, for someone who doesn't really understand the scene at the World Series of Poker, what is it like up close and personal when those people are all in pursuit of the, uh, what is it, the Immaculate Bracelet? What do they call the bracelet? It's the... <laughs> the, the biggest one is the main event bracelet, the gold bracelet, which is the, uh, the feature the uh-huh. $10,000 buy-in world championship, which starts in July. Mm-hmm. And then there's uh, 75 other bracelets that they play for. Uh, the scene is, is pretty much, if you can imagine, I don't know if you've ever been to Jiffy Lube, but <laughs> if you imagine, just you know, Jiffy Lube has maybe two bays, two car bays. So uh-huh. if you imagine about three or four or 5,000 people waiting to use those two car bays and just sort of piling into the same area and kind of rushing to get there, and some don't shower, some don't shave, but they all want to get into that Jiffy Lube car bay so the jiffy lube attendant can tell them that yeah we changed your oil but you also need a a carburetor fix and that'll be another three hundred dollars here's what i don't understand norman and i'm sure you can clarify because you are norman chad a man associated globally with the game of poker which is often um regarded as a proxy for mental acuity uh shrewdness um well it seems like every couple of days I meet somebody who tells me they were in the World Series of Poker. How big is the field? The, the, the World Series of Poker is amazing. I mean, it's essentially, it's, it's like, it's the equivalent of the Olympics. So it's a festival that lasts seven weeks and there's mm-hmm. dozens and dozens of events just as there are in the Olympics. Okay. So the opening event this year, uh, which was celebrating the 50th anniversary uh, of the World Series of Poker, uh, they call it the Big 50. They brought the buy-in down to $500 again to the event. Most World Series events cost $1,500 or more. So with only $500 to get into the event, 
and with the payoff being uh, maybe more than a million dollars for your five hundred dollars, twenty eight thousand entries for that five hundred dollar event. That's twenty eight thousand entries. Now you can re-enter that event, but that was that included eighteen or nineteen thousand what we call unique entries, and then some of the people re-entered. So eighteen or nineteen thousand people crowding into the Rio poker rooms uh, over a couple of day period. And that's how popular this thing can be. We're speaking with Norman Chad. What's the farthest you've advanced in the World Series? Uh, I got a little further. You know, I, I've had trouble sometimes. But I don't get very far. I didn't get very far in my first or second marriage. But on my fifteenth <laughs> or sixteenth World Series event that I played about five years ago, uh, it was a, a stud, uh, as a mix we'll call a stud event, stud high low and Omaha high low, two different disciplines of poker. There's about four or five hundred entries. It was a $2,500 event to, to buy into. So with four or 500 entries, I made my only World Series final table, which is, it was, it was just, mm. you know, it was just the height of my poker playing career. I don't have much of a poker playing career. So I finished, uh, I finished fifth or sixth in that field of four or 500 people. To make a final table is very, very hard. I got very, very lucky. And so making the final table was like the equivalent of me winning a bracelet. It was, uh, it was just, you know, it was the proudest moment of my poker playing career. When you're at one of these events, is it like Masters and Johnson showing up at a nudist colony? Are, are you, are you like descended upon by the hordes, the masses? Yeah, I'll be honest with you. I, I really don't like, I really don't like the tone and sensibility of how you put that question. Uh, but I will answer it <laughs> out of fairness for you. And I, I'm not going to walk off the set. Uh, I, I, I could have come up with a better, analogy yeah, or metaphor. I didn't like, mean it know, as an insult. I, I mean, they're important people. They're <laughs> scientists or were. No, people have compared it, people have compared it more, uh, to be honest with you. I know Masters and Johnson are, are very good scientists that most of your current listeners or listener just do, do not know who they are. But uh, if they, more, people <laughs> well, compare it Sinatra, more people compare it to Sinatra walking into the stands uh, during its heyday. Uh, yes, the, when I walk into a poker room in Las Vegas, <laughs> particularly the World Series of Poker, that's the only place where, you know, somehow I am, uh, I don't know if the word is revered, but certainly I'm pestered. And what does that feel like? It's unusual for me because, uh, as we know, I'm probably not a people person. Now, no reason for you to have to uh, expand on that. Nope. I'm probably not a What's people it going person. On? So uh, it, it's an unusual muscle that I have to flex. Mm-hmm. It comes with the territory. It's certainly, you know, it's, it's, it's unusual for me. I've gotten used to it, sort of. Uh, I've, you know, I actually sign autographs, which my kids, my stepkids look at and go, why are they asking for your autograph? I take a million selfies, which my stepkids go, why would they ever want your picture? So it's just something I've gotten used to. And it's certainly, you know, it, it's a good territory because I love doing the poker broadcast. Uh, it's a lot of fun. So if that comes with, you know, dealing with the people out there. I can deal with the people out there. We're speaking with Norman Chad. The poker maven, the couch slouch columnist, globally syndicated his TV sports column, which has been must reading for the cognoscenti in the industry for decades now. Um, Norman, what's the obsession with James Holtzauer? If uh, Holtzauer, am I saying it right? What's that yeah, all about? Your obsession with him? Well, it was fact, you know, I had not watched Jeopardy in, in probably twenty years, and uh, when I heard he was having this you know, early historic run and playing the game differently, I turned it on. And I turned it on partially also because I knew he was a professional sports gambler. I knew he used to be a professional poker player or a semi-professional poker player online. So watching what he did to that game 
and simply he, he came up with a different gaming theory. He probably would have won all the times he won if he just played the game like everybody else did. Mm. But he, he came up with a strategy which made a whole lot of sense that nobody had thought of in the, you know, the 35 year history of the primetime Jeopardy or the nighttime Jeopardy, not to mention the previous Jeopardy with Bart Fleming, one of my favorite childhood uh, oh, game show hosts. Yeah, so right. he, he came up with a whole new way to play the game and to attack the game and to virtually strangle hold the game. Now, all that doesn't work unless he has all the answers, which is just amazing on top of all that. So it's just an incredible amount of knowledge he's uh, acquired over the years. But then to, to be able to recall it at that moment under the hot light and buzz in before, plus he's got to learn the buzzer. All three people usually know the answer. They're so smart. And somehow he gets the, the whole rhythm of how to get the buzzer done. So you put all those things together, and we were essentially, you know, we were watching, you know, Michelangelo paint the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. So I don't understand why you think it's such a problem that I watched them for 20 or 30 days. What is the correlation, if there is any, between intelligence and success at poker? There are people, you know, there's, it's almost like a street, a street native intelligence. So there are a lot of people who are very, very good at poker who don't have, you know, high IQ or don't have, you know, we'd call book intelligence. You know, one of the reasons I think poker is underrated by people to understand it is that there's a lot of different skills that go into poker. You know, I used to joke with, you know, Bob, you know, Bob Costas carries a Mickey Mantle uh, baseball card famously mm-hmm. in his wallet for many, number many years. And so I'd say I'd, I'd carry a Doyle Brunson baseball card before I carry a Mickey Mantle baseball card. And Norman, before we let you go, on a more personal note, you know, we had this kind of uh, fake or semi-fake uh, Twitter war going back and forth. And, you know, I, I was a little sensitive about it because I felt like uh, sometimes maybe you were a little too cutting and it was a little too close to the truth, which, you know, is always when, you know, something really hurts. Uh, but I see you backed off and I've got mixed emotions because part of me is relieved uh, because nobody likes to be criticized, even if it's a semi-joke. And part of me is hurt because it seems like you've just moved on. What, what's what's actually happened? Okay. Your interpretation of the events are different than the actual reality of the events. <laughs> I usually just back Not off, in conformity you know, with objective reality, as Edward Bennett Williams said about George Steinbrenner? Wow, you pulled that one out. I got to tell you, you remain one of the better educated people uh, I've ever met. Uh <laughs> And as, as, as Aristotle once said, you know, the roots of education are bitter, but the fruit is sweet. And you are a, a living, a living example of that each and every day. Thank you. I didn't back off. I just was taking some time off. You seem to enjoy the back and forth. Uh, you now, because you pissed me off with this question, not to mention the earlier Masters and Johnson uh, revelation, that I will, re- I will, as soon as I get off the phone with you here, I will restoke the, the, the fake Twitter war. Uh, the only reason I I was backing off at all is that some people took it seriously, and I felt bad about it. They thought I was atta- I got too many people thought I was attacking mm. seriously. That's right. Uh, I did. Mind- I forgot that. Yeah, I didn't mind being the bad guy, even though some people again tweeted me or direct messaged me. You know who who has a Twitter war with Jeremy Shaw? I right. mean, how 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 screwed up are you? We know I'm screwed up, but it was a fake Twitter war. But now it will be a fake Twitter war. But it will be it'll be it'll be a massive. Take Twitter. Where I'm cocked and loaded now to come back at you uh, as hard as I can, but it will be fake. Norman, it's always a pleasure. My respect for you knows no bounds. Norman Chad is the couch slouch, and he's he's the best. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, sir. This is the Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. 
Wednesday, to put it plainly, was a sad day for those of us here at ESPN. That's when we found out that our friend and colleague Bob Lee would be retiring. Bob Lee, who's been at ESPN for nearly 40 years. We're happy as well because Bob is leaving on his own terms, in good health, with much to look forward to. So we're not sad for Bob, we're only sad for us. Bob announced his retirement on Twitter Wednesday morning. He wrote, Across 40 years, I've enjoyed a professional journey unimaginable when I joined ESPN on its first weekend of existence in 1979. Each day since has been a unique adventure, one I embrace for the challenge and unequaled fun of a job like no other. Now it is time for change. In this segment, we're going to play the retrospective piece that I wrote on the occasion of Bob's retirement this week. We'll also be playing a conversation I had with Bob on Wednesday afternoon. On a personal note, I've been at ESPN since 1993. By the time I got to the network in 1993, Bob Lee was already a legend. He was already one of the most important people at the network and had been for a long time. I've been fortunate over the decades to benefit from his friendship, his wisdom, his professionalism. Now we're going to have to go forward without Bob Lee in our midst, which is going to be difficult. Uh, Bob represented so much here at the network. He stood for so much. He did so much. He is going to be missed, uh, not just by me, but by all of his colleagues, by everyone here at ESPN. A- and he... He was described as the conscience of the network. He was uh, the journalistic heart and soul of the network. Um, he, he was one of those figures here at the network who will certainly uh, deserve a place on its Mount Rushmore if they ever build one. And if they don't, uh, we will know that he deserves that place anyway. Let's look back now at Bob's extraordinary and much laureled career. Hi, I'm Bob Lee, and for the past 16 years, I've been part of something very special here at ESPN called SportsCenter. For nearly 40 years, when things turned serious in the world of sports and beyond, ESPN turned to one man. When the earth shook at the 1989 World Series, Bob Lee was on the scene. My gosh, downtown San Francisco, it's buckled, it's gone. When Pete Rose was banned from baseball for life, Bob Lee was there. Did you Uh, bet on baseball? You ask me that every time I talk, and uh, you're going to get the same answer today (laughs) as you got that time, and that's no. When bombs went off near the finish line of the Boston Marathon, Bob Lee was in the anchor's chair. All of New England emotionally shares in this moment, torn asunder at 2.50 p.m. by simultaneous explosions on Boylston Street in downtown Boston. Day in, day out. Year after year, it was Lee who was counted upon to report the news, ask the tough questions, project gravitas, whether he was in the studio or on assignment. In places like Russia, Vietnam, Cuba, South Africa, and Brazil. As the host of Outside the Lines from its inception in 1990, Lee imbued the show with his own journalistic values and temperament. How difficult a decision was it for you to come public? With Lee at the helm, OTL's been for three decades a bastion of impactful reporting and commentary. 
and the recipient of the industry's most prestigious awards. Which is not to say that Lee couldn't be playful and funny. Over here. Hello. <laughs> he was. As one of the mainstays of the Sports Center desk in the 1980s and 90s. <laughs> you punch, we gotta do it again. Hamming it up in Sports Center commercials. The sweet science, bring it on. Hosting coverage of big events, including his favorite, the World Cup. I don't know if we've ever seen anything like it in sports, considering, as we said at the top, where this was played, what the stakes were, who the participants were. Lee's versatility, his ability to do everything well, was always evident. From interviewing presidents to making sense of the unfathomable. Sports is an afterthought. We fully appreciate that. We know that you do as well. In the early freewheeling days of ESPN, Lee was called upon to provide play-by-play -play coverage of nearly every sport on the air. Hello and welcome once again to the NCAA Basketball Report. I am Bob Lee. But eventually it became clear that Lee was most valuable at the anchor desk, where he was unflappable, incisive, and adroit. Over the years, as Lee's stature grew, he allowed himself to show more of his personality on the air. For those who say it's, it, it is base canard and unfair that FIFA makes it up as they go along, they are making it up as they go along. And to share more of his opinions. I am losing count of the ways the Ohio State response is both feckless and beyond tone deaf, but I fear that counting has just begun. In the end, if a single word can be used to describe all that Lee contributed, all the ways in which he helped build ESPN, it would simply be integrity. The integrity he brought every day to his duties at the anchor desk. The integrity he insisted upon in the work of Outside the Lines. The integrity that informed his relationships with his colleagues. There has never been an ESPN without Bob Lee. Now, as he walks away, it's clear that there never will be. He will always be part of its history, its fabric its essence. He will remain a beacon to all who follow, not only here in Bristol, but wherever journalism is practiced, wherever its values matter. Wednesday, he appeared for the last time on Outside the Lines. I was hosting the show. Bob was the guest. Here's a portion of our conversation. I do want to talk about mm -hmm. what has made your career um, as special, as extraordinary as it has been. Why do you think your work has resonated for so long with so many? I don't know. I, uh, I, I've never put a lot of thought into that. I really haven't. I just think, and we, we, I think I see a need for more and more of this around us in the media landscape. And I, talk, I was given a commencement address this year, again at Seton Hall, and I talked about some of this, um, an objective media. I mean, you look around, that's tough to find now. And that's a shame. And you almost have to train yourself as an educated consumer and citizen to factor in who am I watching and can I trust them or do I have to put the bias filter in, not to say that this particular outlet or person can't give me something good. And that's where we're at. And I've always, I was brought up that way to, you know, if you're going to go into this line of work, and I mean, you were too. I mean, your dad was a titan of this industry. He's in the Hall of Fame. Um, you play it down the middle. It's a human interest story, but, you know, nobody should know what you think. Because our job is to get the answers, put them on the table, follow them up hard and fast. It's all for opinion, but label it as opinion. And there's not a lot of that out there now. And I'd like, it's, it, 
from from the drop with OTL, which began in 1990s episodically and then became a weekly show in 2000, then became a daily and nightly show in 2003. It's been gratifying when we go into those topics and talk about those things, be it race, be it concussions, be it steroids, be it whatever, and people will sit for nuance. They'll sit for something more than 140 characters. They'll sit for a half hour. Uh, we need to retrain our our synapses to do that now, uh, and it, that's been gratifying. When young people ask you, and they do all the time, how do I do this? How do I do this job? How do I be a journalist? How do I be fair? How do I uh, be objective? How do I apply the lessons that I'm taught in practice? Yeah. What, what do you say to them? I tell you, for people coming into this field now, I, I wish I were them. Um, there are different hurdles to get over, I think, than you and I had when we got into this. I mean, let's face it, we're a lot closer in Asia than, you know, the people we're talking about who are aspiring to come into this You're field. You're still much older, but... Yeah, I have a point you never fail to point out. <laughs> anyway, well, where ahead. was Go I? Go ahead. Um, but now you can distribute your uh, your work product. The, the number of platforms that are out there, the ability to make a name for yourself... Um, uh, what is the Sunday morning newsletter that our friend Don Van Atta put? The Sunday morning long read. And if you, you know, at home, it's worth subscribing to because there's so much good journalism and writing out there that you can make a name for yourself. And some of the best work is being done by some of the youngest people on the continuum of age in our profession. And you hold that up as an example of the people who are aspiring. See, you can do this. There's room for classic. There's also room for commentary. And for point of view, you know, our next. Which time, you embrace exactly. I love Hunter Thompson. I, I love I love reading, you know, left wing and right wing publications. And you go and you with your eyes wide open, you'll find good stuff. But at least understand it. Don't take it as 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 gospel. I mean, there are people that saw the movie JFK from Oliver Stone and thought it was historical fact. Hello, no, it wasn't. Look, it, it, what you've been doing for so long, no one would compare it to digging ditches, but it could be a grind. You're doing it every day. Yeah. You're coming in. You're giving every ounce of yourself to the job. And I know that uh, over the last nine months, as you've had some time to relax, that's felt good. But, but what are the things you're going to miss about coming in and doing this job? Oh, come on. You know the answer to that. It's the people, without hands down, uh, some of whom I saw today for the first time since late September. Some of whom I've had occasion to, you know, get together. You, of course, prime on that list. Uh, what was it about three weeks ago? We had a nice Italian meal. We certainly did. I think we split it. You didn't. You didn't. He didn't pull out the company credit card. You're not going to mention the pensioner thing again. <laughs> I mean, really. At that point, you were still on the no, payroll. But I'm gonna. I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm gonna miss uh, the people. Uh, and I'm not dying. And everybody, you know, I live. You know, we'll get together. We'll see. I miss the meeting, the creative process. Uh, to the extent you come in at 7 o'clock in the morning on those great days when you don't, you know, you, it's not a worry. What do we put in the show? What do we have, you know, what won't make it in because such a great day? Those days at about 11 o'clock with a 1 o'clock airtime, something happens. And as we would say here, you blow up the show. We got we to gotta change it on the fly or do something quickly or do it, uh, go longer than a half hour. That's when the adrenaline runs. And, and, and not to wish for ill Events in the world, but I, you know, when Muhammad Ali died, you and I worked together till four in the morning. Uh, the Boston Marathon bombing, we worked together uh, for hours together, and that's when you feel that there is a responsibility on your shoulder to get it right. You don't have to be first to bring perspective, to be accurate, and to keep your point of view out of it because it doesn't matter in a moment like that. Those are the things that will matter. I really miss. 
You were so close to so many people from the beginning here, right. obviously. Who are the people you're thinking about today? Um, well, people on this show, certainly, uh, who you uh, spend more time with uh, than you do your family. That's important. Uh, and uh, But the people I, I, who I, I reached out to... Uh, George Bodenheimer, former president of the uh, network, did me a solid about four or five years ago. He left the company, re- retired. It, I think similar circumstances in that it had not been anticipated. He called me that morning. He gave me about three or four hours head notice because we go back way back to the birth. And last night I reached out to George to give him the similar props. And uh, you know, John Walsh, Steve Anderson, Vince Doria, guys like that who uh, wanted to let know. Uh, my good friend Sandy Padway edited my statement, which is a former dean of the Columbia University. Uh, Can't get a better one. Yeah, journalism, uh, graduate school of journalism, and a titan at Sports Illustrated. Guys like that, and so many people, though, who um, in just uh, off... Look, this is... You know this. This is a team <clears throat> effort. I, I have the easiest job in the world. I sit out here and I front for all of these people. And... Um, you know, they, they make me look good, and they have through the years. Those are the people. And, and as I said in my, the prelude to my statement, too many people to start. If I start naming names, you leave people out, and I will circle back and thank them all. But it, it's uh, if our careers and lives have touched each other, thank you. It means a great deal. You said you're retiring from ESPN. doesn't necessarily mean you're not ever going to work again. What, what are the things that uh, might be next for you? Well, I've been training for an MMA career. <laughs> <laughs> working on that. I think, um, I think we're associated with, with UFC. And I, I see this sitting here, and I'm thinking about oh, uh, yeah. a little viniculture would, wouldn't hurt yeah, you. There's a bottle of stag's leap in front of you, and you, you just noticed it. May, no. may I? Uh, it, may please I? do, because it's... Uh, uh, might uh, as well. Yeah. You first. Oh, well, thank you. I haven't even had breakfast. That's far th- more than enough. Thank you. Uh, but uh, I've, I've got some thoughts and some ideas, and certainly education is part of it. Uh, I was raised to believe it's very important. Uh, some people I, in my life who are associated with other schools have even reached out today and you know, offered a chance for me to become involved in some things, and there's my alma mater. That's important. And um, uh, you make decisions like this for the most important things in your life, which are your family and friends. And uh, that's, that's at the front of my temporal lobe right now. Our old friend uh, John Swatsky, who was the interview uh, uh, guru, might not approve of the way I am phrasing this question. But um, with all the things you've achieved, all the things you've done here, all the uh, ways in which you helped build this place, uh, one of the foundational people here, what, what are the things you're most proud of? I'm proudest of being part of uh, being in at the ground floor of something that's become an American cultural institution. Uh, I don't think you can write the cultural history of the United States for the last 40 or 50 years without being a, a chapter on sports as an entertainment industry. And this this entity, which was at just a TV, one TV network to begin with, and it's now a global monolith, without without talking about it. I'm proudest of that. I'm proudest of uh, Outside the Lines, what we've achieved there. I think we've provoked a lot of thought. Uh, sports Center, another institution that I was was in on the on the bottom and uh, the things we did I think uh, covering soccer um, we promised ourselves that the 2010 World Cup would change our lives in South Africa and I think it, it, it changed a lot of things it changed the way this country looked at the sport and I spent about three months in country all told and it uh, it was very impactful well I just want to say uh, as we prepare to wrap up here 
and it seems surreal that this is the last time on air. You're on air, on you're going to be in this studio, uh, which which we refer to as the house, the studio that Bob built. Um, it's uh, you have been a mentor. You have been a great friend. You have been a tremendous colleague. You have been a role model, and more than that, you have been great company for the last 26 years, uh, wherever we have been around the world. And we are all going to miss you tremendously. Uh, there is no one who means more to this place, to its DNA, to what it is at the molecular level. And I think as um, many people have expressed today, it is incumbent upon all of us to perpetuate your legacy here, to do uh, the kind of work that we hope will make you proud in the future. Um, that nothing would please me more than continuing to consume, to tune in, to read, and just to see the reaction to uh, great stuff being done here. And uh, if anything I did is a small role going forward, um, that's good stuff. This is sitting here. Oh, yeah. This is killing me. Cheers. Cheers, sir. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. And this week, it is a pleasure to welcome to the show one of the most beloved figures at ESPN. I'm not exaggerating, and I'm not blowing smoke. Uh, an old friend of mine, one of the very few people in the company uh, who started out on the production side at the very entry-level position of production assistant, and it is now uh, a world-renowned journalist, uh, on-camera personality, uh, reporter on the digital side, author... Bon Vivant, host of Marty and McGee, which I think follows this show on many ESPN radio stations. I mean, those few that carry the sporting life. Uh, we welcome the great Ryan McGee. Thank you for being with us. I'm done. That was great. I'm going to just clip that off. I'm going to use that as my ringtone, and that was great. I love the fact that you used some French term that I don't know what that means, and it, but I assume it don't, was good. Don't, so don't good. play the bumpkin with me, McGee. <laughs> You know, I understand that's that's like part of your shtick, yeah. but I, it doesn't fly with me. I know exactly just how sophisticated and worldly yeah. you are and how well-versed you are, um, especially in the romance languages. No, it is. And, uh, and, and I spent, speaking of the romance languages, I was in a, a used <laughs> bookstore in Omaha, Nebraska just a few days ago, uh -huh. and there was your father's book. And I was like, it was like an antique bookstore. And uh, I, I should have purchased it. Instead, I purchased a college football book that was written in 1908. Well, I'm a little, I'm a little confused because you said speaking of the Romance languages, was it a French or a Portuguese version of one of my father's books? <laughs> what, what, was was it Romance? It felt romantic when I read it years ago. Maybe oh. maybe, maybe I remember it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> We're speaking with the great Ryan McGee, who is fresh off, as you just heard, an assignment in Omaha, Nebraska, which which is almost kind of like dead center, middle of the country. I guess Kansas City might be technically closer to the geographic center of the lower 48, but I think of Omaha as being right there as well. Um, it was uh, one of your favorite events, and an event that I think we can say is actually penetrating the national consciousness in a way in the last few years that maybe it had it in the past. Uh, I'm talking about the College World Series. What makes you love it? What What's great about the College World Series? Well, Jeremy, my favorite sporting events are the ones that are owned by their hometown. You know, I love the Indianapolis 500. I love the Daytona 500. I think about the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, uh, obviously the Masters in Augusta, or the Kentucky Derby. But I love the events 
that have a home base and have had that home base forever and how the city just just they they love it and so what ends up happening is you have these generations of fans who have attended these events over the years and the first college world series i attended was with my father on father's day weekend and we had because of espn and cable television we were a college sports household and we were all like man one day would it be great to get to omaha and my father and i finally did in 2001 and it was everything we had dreamed of it was old rosenblatt stadium on the hill uh, it was the section we were sitting in in the stands, those, those crazy technicolor plastic seats they had at Rosenblatt. And it was, we're sitting with a family that was the great-grandfather, the grandfather, the father, and then all the great-grandchildren. And they all had on hats of different schools that had nothing to do with the state of Nebraska. Uh, it was just schools that they had all grown up watching, LSU, Miami, USC, Mississippi State, you name it. And so I just fell in love with it. And, and it's still – even though we still call it the new ballpark, it's been nine years, there's still that just just a charm to it, and you just don't really experience that at a lot of sporting events. Ryan McGee, who's just been at the College World Series, I suppose it's incumbent upon us at this point to mention that Vanderbilt won uh, in a deciding third game on Wednesday night after having lost the first game in the best of three to Michigan, which was making its, what, uh, which was hoping to win its first title since 1962. And, and from what I understand, I'm, I'm not an aficionado, but I do have a basic grasp of the concept that it's colder in the northern part of the country and unusual, therefore, to see northern teams get this far in the College World Series. What made Michigan special? Well, it just doesn't happen. I mean, the last time a quote-unquote cold-weather school is what they call it in college baseball, the last time – one of those schools won the title was Ohio State in 1966. There, there's a, a tremendous stretch for the Big Ten from the mid-50s uh, until 1966 where Minnesota, Michigan, and Ohio State all racked up College World Series titles, and then they just vanish. And that was the rise of Southern California. That was the rise of Texas, the rise of Arizona, Arizona State. And then in the 80s and 90s, it was the Southeastern Conference. That's when LSU starts showing up. And that's when Mississippi State and Arkansas, all these schools start flooding Omaha. And so, yeah, for years it was the case. It was a much different sport then. It was a, a regular season that only lasted, lasted less than two months. The College World Series was typically over uh, in early June. It, there wasn't an expanded NCAA tournament. And so, yeah, it's super unusual. But this Michigan team, uh, is led was by a coach named Eric Bakich, who was an assistant at Vanderbilt, was an assistant at Clemson, and he attacked this job by saying, we're not going to use cold weather as an excuse. And we've seen teams before, Notre Dame made the College World Series, Indiana made the College World Series, but it doesn't happen very often. And we've never had a team, a, a quote-unquote cold weather school, become right up to, I mean, have their cleats up against the trophy, a chance to win the national championship as they did on Wednesday night in Omaha. So it was unusual, and now the question is, will he stay? Because we have seen schools make a run like this before, and then the southern schools or the Sunbelt schools, the California schools call, and they say, why don't you come down here to a place where you could do this all the time? Bakich told me on Wednesday night, his heels are dug in. He believes that he can finally break the cold weather curse and convince other schools in the Midwest and the Northeast that they can do it too. Before we let you go, as someone who has spent so many years at ESPN in so many different roles, uh, someone who has an appreciation for the history of the place, for the um, culture 
of ESPN. What does it mean to you to see Bob Lee retire? Well, I'm happy and I'm sad. You know, someone tweeted this out that said they now understand truly what the word bittersweet means, and that's how I feel. I'm happy for Bob because he's happy. I mean, you know that. And and he's happy looking into his future. He's happy with what he's done in his past. But, you know, Jeremy, you, you and I both kind of made that crossover move from, you know, one day you're in the building working on production and the next day and possibly they've handed you a microphone. And I'll, But I'll never forget, I was there for a job interview in the summer of 1993, right out of college. Bob Lee pats me on the shoulder as he's inevitably walking across the street to go to McDonald's, which he used to do every day. He taps me on the shoulder and he says, do you have a PA interview today? And PA is production assistant. And I said, yes. And he said, you'll do great. He said, just don't pass out. And just kept walking. (laughs) Ryan McGee, the one and only. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. Tune in again next weekend. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern time.